You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. For those who may not realize, we have, uh, I mentioned last week, uh, the Lawanga community, and we talked about Luke 14, where Jesus said to uh, a people in power that when they're to throw a banquet that they should invite, essentially, um, he used four terms, and it, and it really means those who are in poverty and those who live differently abled lives. And if you are not familiar with our beloved in Lawanga, um, that can be a bit of a reflection of many of them. And they are a part of our family, and we love them dearly. And one of the things we wanted to do was to do something called Breakfast with the Beloved. So we were going to take the second Monday of every month during the church staff meeting and invite any of you who wanted to come and share a meal with them and play games with them and just simply be with um, our beloved brothers and sisters there. Sister reminded me that they get to come and be a part of things with us on a fairly regular basis and any time. We've had some of the women go on retreats and on and on. But there is a group of Luanga called St. Michael's Day Center. They go to St. Michael's Day Center and they, the differently abled lives that they live make it harder for them to come out into public spaces, make it hard for them, if not impossible, to come here. And so Sister asked if we could take breakfast to them. And that is much more faithful to the heart of what we should be doing. And so this second Monday, uh, last Monday, we went to St. Michael's and we spent a morning with them. Uh, Joyce was with us. And it was beautiful, wasn't it? It was life-giving. Um, and to be quite direct with you, it was literally an embodiment of what Jesus said in Luke 14. That when you think about the words of Jesus in Luke 14, these are the neighbors that Jesus is talking about. These are the ones we should party with and spend time with and uh, see the goodness of God. Sister sent me a text. Now, Sister has this knack of sending me text messages after midnight. Um, I don't know why. Now, if you don't know who Sister Agnes is, so the Luanga community is led by Franciscan nuns who are African. And so you won't see there, Sister Rosemary and Sister Agnes, our Alethea is not here this morning, but we, we have nuns in our church. Um, that is a, a, a beautifully unique thing about the body of Christ here at WCC, and they consider this their church. Um, they... She, Sister Agnes, is the mother of the order here, uh, and just, she's, I've said this before, and I can say this, especially now that she's not here, if you ever want to know what Jesus, what Jesus looks like, Jesus looks like Sister Agnes. Uh, I should say, Sister Agnes looks like Jesus. Um, she sent me a text message at midnight, because that's how she works. And she said, that was a very good beginning to meet the Lawanga House troopers. Everyone enjoyed the visit, we just wanted more, more, more. And I responded, we feel the same way. Thank you for letting us be with you all, dear sister. And then those are her words. Amen, amen, I am crying with joy. We are really beloved. And I wanted to share that with you because a lot of times we see the Christian life as this extraordinary effort that we have to make. <clears throat> we see young people like, like Ethan and we go, oh, he's maybe called to vocational ministry. That's awesome. That's, that's really that's, that's, that's good, right? And we, 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 but we think, that that's, we think that that's extraordinary, like that it's more than. I wanted to read that to you because I wanted you to see that Christ is found in the ordinary. Christ is most often found in the ordinary. Not in 
always in the extraordinary. Christ is not often found, not always found in the big lights in the big rooms with the big shows. Christ is often found in a day center. Matter of fact, I would argue Christ can always be found in a day center. You have Christ with you and can walk in these ordinary ways as everyday people living in everyday places. If you and I will just decide that we're going to let go of facilitating program and instead facilitate presence. That is the heart of the church. And it's the heart of this church because we believe that's the heart of Christianity because it's the heart of God expressed in the heart of Jesus. And so we're going to continue on. If you want to join us in the second Mondays, I cannot... I mean, I, could, I can't persuade you more than I, I mean, I would try to persuade you with everything in me to take an hour or even two from your work schedule to mask up and to be with us and to sit with, eat with, and even play games with uh, these beloved ones. So second Mondays, 10 to 12, St. Michael's. Come as you can, come as long as you can, but just come. Because as I think about this, I think about how the world just cannot escape the reality of Jesus. I mean, even if the world doesn't believe that Jesus' claims are what they are, the world can escape the fact that Jesus changed the world. Jesus healed the sick. He healed the sick so much that he was called in the Christian tradition the great physician. But it's not just that Jesus healed the sick that made the difference. It's how Jesus healed the sick. Are you with me? It's the how. It's not the what. God's all about the means. We realize that, like, the end doesn't justify the means in the kingdom of God. God is all about the means, not just the end. Matter of fact, the end can be right, but if the means are wrong, God's not interested, it seems to me, as I read Scripture, in the end that we bring. It's how Jesus healed the sick. He touched the lepers and the sick in their wounds. He pursued them in the leper colonies on the outskirts of town. He not only allowed them to pursue him, which would have been enough, he pursued them. And in doing so, taught them about the love of God, about the liberation of God, about the kingdom of God. When you look at Jesus' life, y'all, and you contrast it with the political and religious leaders of his day, come on now, stay with me. If you contrast the life of Jesus with the people in politics and power and religion, here's what you find. The political leaders and the religious leaders left a trail of wounded bodies in their path, while Jesus left a trail of liberated bodies in his. And we have to see that. We have to see it today, y'all. Because that is the Christian story. So much so, and I've shared this quote before, maybe three times, two times during this series. I'm going to keep doing it. But historians remind us that one of the greatest reasons Christianity flourished in the first few centuries of his existence was how Christians followed Jesus. It was how they loved the unwelcome and the unwanted. It wasn't their shows. It wasn't good preaching and good music and fancy buildings. It was how they loved their neighbors as they loved themselves. It was how they followed Jesus. And, and it's been said before that Christianity has always spread more through fascination rather than coercion. We need to get that straight too. 
But Tertullian, who was a second, Afri second century African church leader, said that it is our care of the helpless and our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of our opponents. It wasn't bumper stickers, t-shirts, mugs, or pins. It wasn't good shows and a great and savvy social media campaign. It was the quiet ordinariness of a people who are willing to run into the margins and love people just as they are, tangibly and concretely. Are you with me? This is important because we live in a moment where in the name of Jesus, political leaders are busting up neighbors who are immigrants, children included, and putting them on flames and dropping them off in some random place and saying somehow these same people are saying they're Christians while they're doing that. I can't think of anything more contrary to the way of Jesus than taking the most vulnerable and flying them somewhere without their blessing and permission, where nowhere to go. But there was a church in Massachusetts who took them in. Because that's what the church should do. So much so that it's always been a given. Because what did Jesus say? I was a stranger, and you what? And you took me in. Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done what? This was the word. Matter of fact, in the 4th century, it hadn't changed. A sickness broke out in Asia Minor, and a prominent Cappadocian church leader, one of my favorites, Basil, said this. Look at what he said. What if we build a place to love and care for lepers? They don't have money. They don't even have to pay for it. Read it with me. We will raise the money. You want to know why WCC leadership has, doesn't have a problem calling you to generosity? Because that's our story. You know, Basil looked around at the sick and the dying on the outskirts of town and said, we have, these, we, we, we have resources among ourselves. They can't pay for help. They can't pay for care. So what if we built buildings so that they could find care? And if we can't afford it, why don't we just raise the money and get it done? Because our God has cattle on the land of a thousand hills. And there's no one he loves more than humanity. And you want to know how much God, you don't want to know how you can tell God loves humanity? Because he became one. That's how much he loves us. And Basil, his brother, Gregory of Nyssa, he agreed with this sentiment. He preached one of the most prolific sermons in the first 300 years of the church. He was preaching out of Matthew chapter 25. It's going to sound familiar to you. And he was doing this in light of a society that was treating the sick as undignified, disposable outcasts. And he said, lepers have been made in the image of God in the same way you and I have, and perhaps preserve that image better than we. Let us take care of Christ while there is still time. Let us minister to Christ's needs. Let us give Christ nourishment. Let us clothe Christ. Let us gather Christ in. Let us show Christ honor. Right now, Christ is being put on a plane and flown to somewhere and dropped off in the middle of nowhere. That's our world. That's our nation. And to have to convince Christians that that is an anti-Christian practice and move is mind-boggling to me in light of this witness. In light of this witness.
Tertullian said, it's our care for the helpless. Everybody say helpless. That brands us in the eyes of our opponents. Now, you want to know what happened as a result of all this? In 325 Common Era, the Council of Nicaea came together, a worldwide council of churches. And you know what they decreed? They decreed, as a result of this witness and leadership, because of what they read about Jesus, they decreed that every cathedral would operate doubly as a hospital for the sick and the wounded. Rome liked that idea and started funneling money into it. Guess what it created? Hospitals. Hospitals were given to the world because the church decided to leverage its resources, its power, privilege, and position, as we said last week, for the good of those who did not have. And they did all of that because they knew stories like the one we're going to see this morning. Mark chapter 5, verse 24. A swarm of people were following Jesus, crowding in on Him. A woman was there who had suffered from chronic bleeding for 12 years. Everybody say 12 years. She had suffered a lot under the care of many doctors and had spent everything she had without getting any better. In fact, she had gotten worse. Because she had heard about Jesus, she came up behind Him in the crowd and touched His clothes. Let me pause. Luke this is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke tells us that she touched the hem of his garment, which seems to give the indication that she was dragging herself across the ground, which if she had chronic bleeding for 12 years, I imagine the energy of her body was gone. Verse 28, she was thinking, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Her chronic bleeding stopped immediately, and she sensed in her body that her illness had been healed. At that very moment, Jesus recognized the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, Don't you see the crowd pressing against you, yet you ask who touched me? But Jesus looked around carefully to see who had done this. The woman, full of fear and trembling, came forward. Knowing what had happened to her, she fell down in front of Jesus and told him the whole truth. And he responded, Daughter. Everybody say, Daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. And be free from your affliction. Now, even though this story is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in Mark's account, stay with me on this, it's kind of a nerd moment, but, but we need to know the context. I'll come back to it later briefly, but I don't want to, you, you, we have to do justice to the text. In Mark, Mark oftentimes when he's writing his letter, he usually puts stories together. He tries to pair stories so that they make a bigger point. This story is actually paired uh, with Jairus' daughter who was sick who eventually died. She was 12 years old. This woman had suffered chronic bleeding for how long? 12 years. Jesus calls her what? And the other stories about Jairus is what? There's a bigger point to be made. We'll get back to it, but I wanted you to see the connection. Because I really want to center in on the story. Because this story is, it's a real story. Too many times we read the scriptures, we forget these real people. Like these are the accounts, the oral histories that resulted in the written histories of these stories are stories about real people that people knew. And this story is a story about a desperate woman who had lost everything, including her dignity, both as a woman and just as a member of society. And what's interesting is when people speak of this story, preachers like me, uh, sometimes in your, in your Bibles and the subheadings, it, you see the subheadings in your, in your written Bible sometimes, 
Sometimes this story is called the story of the hemorrhaging woman or the story of the bleeding woman. Sometimes even called the story of the unclean woman. And what you find is that these descriptions point to her loss of dignity. Her medical condition becomes a label that determines her identity. But that's also how the text describes her. It describes her as a woman who has a medical condition. And the Greek phrase that's used to describe the medical condition can translate continuous chronic bleeding. Now, there is a modern medical diagnosis for this. But I want you to think about her story. I've long been able to picture this woman sitting in the street watching Jesus, this man that some call rabbi, and some just call Jesus of Nazareth, and she's, she's heard a lot about him. She wonders if it's all true. Does he, does he really heal the blind? Has he really actually touched lepers? Does he really come from God? And I can see her watching him intently, and for her, life is edging on the, on the uh, closer to uh, unbearable, and it's been this way for, for 12 years. There's no energy. There's no physical strength. It's as if the life is literally draining from her feral body and what's worse is that she's ashamed of this condition everyone tells her that this chronic bleeding is unnatural some have suggested that she's even under a curse friends have abandoned her she has no contact with family she has become a disgrace everyone just looks at her children stop and stare at her no one but doctors have touched her in 12 years she's forgotten what a hug feels like a kiss feels like and if she had a husband and he were going to be faithful to the way people read Leviticus 15, he wouldn't be able to come near her for 12 years. And Mark tells us that for the last 12 years, she's done everything she can. She's met with every doctor after doctor, spending every dime, and she has no hope for your cure. No treatment has worked. And this medical condition has taken every bit of the dignity from her. It's all but taken her life. And now it's become her name. It's her name. She's become a label that's thrust her into a completely different social category. Unclean. That's who she is. Unclean. And she's past the point of human help at least typical human help. And so she sees Jesus, the one who claims to be God, the one who loves like no one else loves, who she's heard has the power to heal anything. She's even heard that he's quite a different leader than the religious leaders that everyone is familiar with. And so she says to herself, I can just touch his clothes. Because see, she knows something about Jesus. She knows that social categories mean nothing to him. People are not political ploys and pawns in some ideology game. People are not problems to solve. They're not projects to fix. They're persons made in the image of God and all of the categories we use to describe people made in the image of God 
to describe ourselves means nothing to Jesus. And so she reaches up and touches his clothes. It's the way the story reads. He can heal her. He can save her. He can restore her dignity. And the bleeding stops. Verse 33, the woman full of fear and trembling comes forward after Jesus asked to touch me, knowing what had happened to her. She fell down in front of Jesus and told him the truth, and he responded, daughter. Everybody say, daughter. Your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. Be free from your affliction. With this one touch and this one moment with Jesus, there is a sudden reversal of life. You see that? There's a reversal of life. Suffering turns into wholeness. And her social classification of unclean, which had become her prison, turns into a new classification that becomes her greatest liberation and hope. And she's now called by Jesus, daughter. Now, this is the only woman in all of Scripture that Jesus calls daughter. No other person. Only her. And I wonder, I've always wondered if Jesus called her that. Because he knew just how much she needed to hear that she was no longer what others said about her. That to God her dignity was restored and she was given a new name because she was loved. Everybody say new name. A new name. Now, remember... There's a larger point to this story with Jairus' daughter and now Jesus' daughter where both stories are about calling out to Jesus, trusting Jesus as the only one with the power to restore life and dignity. Because both stories are about sorrow and death giving way to liberation and life. And in this woman's circumstances, one moment with Jesus opens her up to the reality of the kingdom of God breaking into her life where her dignity is restored. Where her dignity is restored. And I cannot help but wonder how many of us are longing for a greater dignity, a greater honor, a greater respect, a life of deeper meaning, a life of purpose, of value, or hope. And we think, we think, we find ourselves falling into the trap believing that somehow this deep inner satisfaction that we long for is going to be found in some other pursuit. So we get a better job or we get a, a, a better relationship. Or we change our major time after time and we think that if we can find this deep inner satisfaction we yearn for in our jobs or our finances or spouses or children or hobbies or habits, that somehow it'll fill what it is we long for, that somehow that need will be met. That if we just go away more and get out more and be alone more or, or be with these people more, that somehow things will change inside of us. And then what ends up happening is because we believe that it'll actually provide the satisfaction we long for, we begin organizing our lives around it. We begin organizing our priorities around it. We begin arranging our lives around this pursuit of a greater dignity, of a greater honor, of a greater respect. But then... 
the end of the day comes and work is over. The spouse says the wrong thing. Children act out. Semester grades come in. The breakup happens. Your friends let you down. The unexpected bill comes in the mail. And now suddenly we're awakened to the stark reality that this pursuit that we've been on all our lives didn't actually meet the need. Now for some of us, it doesn't awaken our heart. So we just move on to the next pursuit. We find reasons to explain it away and we move on to the next thing. For some of us, it awakens us. But we react impulsively rather than respond with wisdom. And when we react impulsively, it sends us into an emotional nosedive that feels more like a roller coaster ride than following Jesus. And this change that we experience, it can get the best of us. This pursuit gets all of us. And, and, let's, and let's face it, a change in our vocational status or our parental status or our marital status or even our emotional status oftentimes does result in a change of our social status. I think we've all experienced something happens to us and our friends look at us differently now. Right? Something's revealed and now people look at us in a way we've never seen. We even begin to look at ourselves differently. We even fall into the trap of thinking that God looks at us differently. And it's in moments like this that we start to rethink what life is really about. And something else, if we're not careful, will just become our guiding light. The only question is, what will be the something else? And in the most simple way that I can this morning, especially coming after, after last week's really harder message for us, a, real, a harder conversation I was trying to guide us in, I wanted to guide us into a much simpler and, and a more invitational guy, uh, conversation today. And, and so it's real simple. My question is, what are you organizing your life around? Like, what are you, what are you pursuing? I, I invite you to look at this story. I invite you to know this story. I invite you to read this story over and over and over again. I invite you to see the Jesus that you see in the scriptures. And remember that that same Jesus that we called Christ the cornerstone is the same Jesus working right now. The Christ who worked then works here and works right now. And if he doesn't, then I don't know what we're doing. Does that make sense? And we have to turn, we have to look and see, because the only way we know about this Jesus is through the accounts that are given to us about this Jesus. And if you ever want to know what God looks like, then you look at Jesus, because Jesus is what God looks like. So if you want to know what God would say about that, then look at Jesus and what Jesus said. If you want to know what God would do about that, then look at Jesus at what Jesus did. If you want to know how God would treat those people, or what God would think about political leaders treating those people that way, then look at Jesus and see if Jesus did that. And if we don't see it in Jesus, we're not going to hear it from God. <laughs> it's going to be some other God with a lowercase g that we're pursuing, not the Christ of Scriptures who is the God of heaven and earth. At least that's what the Christian tradition believes. And I invite you to look at this story, this beautiful, broken, hard, and tragic, and yet triumphant, real story because if we don't we will miss how this story intersects with our lives 
yeah, your problem and affliction may be different, but the consequences are familiar. The direction we set with our lives, pursuing healing, pursuing help, pursuing satisfaction, restoration, love, hope, meaning, adventure, are often in things that we believe are more tangible than God. I have heard followers of Jesus say more times than I can count, it just helps to have someone or something I can see, hear, or feel. Because we're embodied creatures. But that assumes that God's presence can't somehow be felt or heard or seen. As if God's love cannot be felt or heard or seen. And I wonder if there are times when we are feeling, hearing, or looking just in the wrong direction. Like God's presence and love can be felt, heard, and seen, but maybe not in the way we often expect. Because we've established these expectations of how God should operate. And look, the reality is it may take 12 years. It may take 12 days. It may take 12 months. I don't know and neither do you. One of the most beautiful parts of this story is that Jesus was within this woman's reach. But most importantly, she was never outside of his. You were never going to be outside of God's reach. But no matter what you've done and where you've been, God will never be outside of yours. Don't let anybody who stands in a place like me tell you otherwise. Because it betrays what you see in the scriptures to think otherwise. It's in moments like this, when things don't end up the way we want, that we are in danger of pursuing other things. Where we're in danger of pursuing not Jesus, but a feeling. Where we want the love, but not the lover. We want the healing, but not the healer. Lord knows we want the blessing, but not always the blesser. <clears throat> because the lover and the healer and the blesser want something from us. All of us. And the blesser, the healer, and the lover would not want what he didn't believe we could give. We could, we could not give. He knows. He knows us best. He loves us most. He knows what is possible. And one of the things that I believe that God has given all of those who have been baptized into Christ is that He's given you a new name. Everybody say new name. He's given you a new name. But with a new name comes a new identity. And with a new identity comes a new purpose. And with a new purpose comes a new assignment. But too often times we're holding on to the old names. And we're trying to pursue the identity, the purpose, and the assignment of the old names. And we have all kinds of old names. And they're not necessarily bad names. Husband, wife, child, son, daughter, brother, sister some nationality, some race, or just some gender, or some description of gender. And those aren't necessarily bad names. Those are not the new names God has given. 
where God looks at you and says, son, daughter, where you have the authority and the power of the heavens that rule the earth in you. It's like what Paul said in Romans 8. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of, say it, by whom we cry out what? Abba, Father. Abba is like that most intimate word of Papa or Daddy. Like our divine dignity has been restored. It's, it's, it's being restored. It's, it's been restored in the name that we have received, and it is being restored in the walk that we walk. Jesus wants us to follow him. And I have said this before, and I'll say it today. We live in a moment in this nation's history where Christianity doesn't look a lot like the Christ of Christianity. And the reason I say that is not because of moral slippage. I'm not about to go old like old school hellfire and brimstone, plus I'm about done. I'm saying it doesn't look a lot like Christianity because of what we're doing to neighbors and enemies. We have been given a new name that is above all other names that we have been given. And we have to live in light of our new name. And if we're sons and daughters of God, then we're going to have to name a thing a thing. We're going to have to call a thing what it is. And then we're going to have to embody the thing that we confess. And we do it together. And I'm going to say it again and again and again. It's the Afghan family who is refugees who needed to be resettled that we've been given the grace to resettle. Matter of fact, praise be to God, the kids start school next week. <clears throat> it's that single mother who's pregnant with three kids that we've been talking about and we've been supporting, who, by the way, Friday, moved into her home. Amen. Praise God for that. That is the opposite of some expressions of Christianity that is being presented to the watching world through pulpits of power. It is a Christianity that does not live underneath its new name. Matter of fact, it holds on to the old names and plays by the rules of the world that is old and passing away. It does not play according to the rules of the kingdom because it doesn't live with the new name. We have been given a new name. You have been given a new name. Live in the spirit of your name. Son of God. Daughter of God. Child of God of God, beloved of God. You remember that text that I read last week from Isaiah? If you were here, <clears throat> I opened with this text. You know, it's the text that we looked at where Israel is returning from exile in Babylon and, and they've lived under heavy taxation and Jerusalem's walls are in ruins and hunger and poverty are rampant and the return back to their homeland isn't what they expected and they find themselves still oppressed and ruined and rejected and their land is desolate and they wonder if God has forgotten. They wonder if God's promises have failed and so God sends them a prophet to remind them that this God still has the power to change their name. See, what I love about that text is when we read that text last week and we read that text in a moment, God was thinking about this daughter in Mark 5. 
and he's thinking about you. Isaiah 62, you will be called by a new name, which the Lord's own mouth will determine. You will be a splendid garland in the Lord's hand, a royal turban, a royal, everybody say royal, a royal turban in the palm of God's hand. That's intimacy, that's, that's kingdom power, that's royalty. You will no longer be called abandoned, and your land will no longer be called deserted. Instead, you'll be called my delight is in her, and your land married, because the Lord delights in you. Your land will be cared for once again when the joy of bridegroom because of his bride, so your joy will rejoice, or so your God will rejoice because of you. A new name. There's a word here for us, and there was a word here for a woman that we once called the chronic bleeding woman, or the hemorrhaging woman, or the unclean woman who got a new name from Jesus, and that name was daughter. Beloved, when you have been called ruined or rejected, when you've been called by the hurts or harms you carry, when you've been called unloved or unworthy, hear the words of the Lord himself who looks at you and says, just reach out to me. Just reach out to me, daughter, son. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. 